0: Let's move! ABC Thursdays.
2: Firefighters were family.
0: Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals with fiery romances. you the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge.
1: I'm gonna be the best damn captain the station has ever seen.
0: Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10-9 Central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, Doctoral Candidate in Neuroscience with a focus on Biochemistry and Molecular Biology of Neurodegenerative Diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today we'll be talking to Tony Wiel about the new book, Your Wit is My Command, Building AIs with a Sense of Humor. For fans of computers and comedy alike, an accessible and entertaining look into how we can use artificial intelligence to make smart machines funny. Most robots and smart devices are not known for the joke-telling abilities. And yet, as a computer scientist, Tony vial explains, explains in Your Wit is My Command, machines are not inherently unfunny. They're just programmed
2: that way. Well,
1: Tony, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Glenn.
1: So as we're going through the unprecedented times of the pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by well uh, telling us how has this influenced you and your work and maybe some takeaways that you have gathered from this experience.
2: Well, I'd started the book before the pandemic and the, the first lockdowns in Ireland, I think in March 2020, uh, we were all struggling to adapt, and that's when I got my, my first feedback from MIT Press on the book. So that sharpened my mind a bit, and that, that meant for the first six months of the, the pandemic I was really focusing on the book and trying to uh, nail down the, the key issues. So I found the book very, very useful as something to keep my mind occupied during the pandemic. Uh, as to whether the pandemic changed my opinions about certain topics I'm not sure. I mean, I think like everyone else, you now I've binged a lot of Netflix and found new ways to occupy my time and use new technologies like Zoom and so forth, and thought about how they might be made better and friendlier and perhaps even more engaging and funny. But the the key ideas in the book remain unchanged, I think, by the pandemic experience.
1: So can you tell us a bit more about yourself?
2: Well, I'm a a computer scientist by training. Um, I've been in computer science now since the, I guess, 1990. Uh, My original degree in computer science is from the University of Cork. And I have a PhD in computer science from uh, University of Trinity in Dublin. I've uh, been in industry and academia over the last 30 years or so. I started out in industry I worked for, Hitachi's Dublin Laboratory, for a number of years. And I got to do some pretty cool stuff there, um, often under the radar. If you want to do cool stuff in big companies, you have to dress it up and make it look like something else. But we did some nice stuff there. We did one of the earliest Uh, machine translation systems for sign language. So we were translating from English into American sign language and then animating the output so that we could take an English text and then get it signed. I think that was a bit ahead of its time, but it's coming into Vogue now. We also did a, a bunch of more traditional machine translation stuff. But I did my PhD when I was at Hitachi, and they funded me to do a PhD on metaphor, which is this, as you know, this creative phenomenon in language, where you you see reality through a different lens, uh, and that language helps you to to exaggerate or to see the world differently. So that was a lot of fun, and I'm really grateful to be able to do that with the sponsorship of a company that you might think would have no interest at all in, creative phenomenon. And then I went to to work in America for a while. In the dot-com boom, I worked at an AI company in Texas where we were trying to build a knowledge base of pretty much everything, a common sense knowledge base that a machine might tap into to understand the world. And I was interested in that from the point of view of helping a machine to be more creative. But uh, some of the examples that we came across and the machine's mistakes were very funny. at least I found them to be funny. A little um, dispiriting as well, but largely funny. And you really need to know the world, to laugh at the world. Humor is a a knowledge-based activity. Uh, Aristotle called it a form of educated insolence. You need to be educated in the ways of the world before you can be meaningfully insolent about the ways of the world. So um, I took away from that this this love of knowledge engineering. Then I came back to academia and I've been in the University College Dublin, UCD, um, I think it's 20 years this year. So that's me in a a nutshell.
1: That is really interesting that you went from uh, industry back into academia. So I was wondering whether you have anything to say to our younger listeners and early career researchers who are a little bit unsure about choosing one over the other or moving in between.
2: Yes, that's a a good question. Uh, It depends on what your interests are and how much the market is going to support those interests. So if you're interested in something that the market is also passionately interested in, then you will find a whole bevy of employers eager to compete for your services and to give you uh, good facilities, a good salary, good working conditions. And if you're into the the wilder freakier end of things that don't seem to have any market appeal at the time you're doing them, then you're going to have a a much more barren landscape when it comes to job offers. And the nice thing about academia is that you have the freedom to explore these wild and freaky ideas without having to put a market price on them. So I've really appreciated being able to work at a university. And to study things like computational humor without having to constantly prove to the world that they are ready for um, big time market placement. I don't have to patent what I'm doing. I don't have to make a business case. I'm sure the university would like it if I could, but there's a a freedom to study currently undervalued ideas in academia that I think is the real reason to stay in academia. And if you should stumble into something that has market value, you can always arrange for a collaboration with a company or take a sabbatical in a company. Or if you're really motivated, move out of academia into industry for a while. Maybe you'll stay there or you come back. That's been my way of doing things. I enjoyed my time in industry. Um, but to do things that don't have an obvious industry um, argument behind them the best place to do those, I think, is in academia.
1: So your latest book is Your Wit is My Command, Building AIs with a Sense of Humor. Can you tell us how did you come to writing it?
2: Well, uh, yes, that's a, that's a good example of the not yet ready for a prime time uh, topic that uh, you won't find companies investing the big bucks in. But I think it's wise to be ahead of the curve on these things. Uh, Right now, we don't have the technology to make our machines deliberately and creatively humorous, though I think there is a clear need for machines that are more engaging and more emotionally intelligent and more willing to be playful with their users. Um, So the book is is setting the ground for that. It it looks at this research area called computational humor um, and considers what AI techniques, which are currently in vogue, uh, might get us and what they can do when it comes to humor. But the, the results of this research have yet to play out in ways that will change people's experience of machines on a large scale. The book is a, an introduction to the field and it's a, it's a taster. I hope it whets people's appetite for thinking about computing in the, in the social sphere and for thinking about what computing can tell us about what it means to be human. We often have this false dichotomy between humans and machines. One of the most interesting things we can do with a machine is to try to model humans and in the process learn about what it is that makes us human. And I think that's the foundation of cognitive science as a discipline. And it's also one of the the main rationales for studying humor on a machine, trying to understand something by building it, as opposed to trying to understand something by analyzing it to death. So the engineering approach, what does it take to build a sense of humor can be just or even more enlightening than how do I take a sense of humor apart to understand how it works. And in fact, we do both to understand what works and what doesn't work and what a human is doing when they understand a joke or create a joke requires us to analyze jokes requires us to analyze people, and it also requires us to build models of what those people are doing when they're analyzing or when they're creating.
1: Excellent. So the book is not much about uh, when you write a piece of code and then come back to it in a couple of months and all you can do is either laugh or cry.
2: Well, yes, mainly cry, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the promise of humorous machines is much more um, interesting than the reality at the moment. And I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about educated insolence. We have to educate machines in the ways of the world, in the common sense norms of the world before the machine can actively bend and break those rules and norms to be funny. Now, there is a general perception with the broad success of many kinds of statistical AI in the marketplace that machines do have this problem cracked that they understand us. When people fear that machines have their data and they're tracking us and they understand us and they're predicting what we're about to do, there's a general feeling that the machine knows us. In fact, the machine knows very little. It has some powerful statistical regularities that it can can use to make certain classifications about whether we're a good enough credit risk to deserve a loan from the bank, that kind of thing but uh, it doesn't have the broad, robust understanding of humans that we have of each other. And that's exactly what we need when we make a joke. Uh, making a joke is a very risky business, much more so now than it used to be, um, especially as an academic, I've been told off for some of the jokes I've analyzed in the past. Um, and I have to remind people that there's a, a use, mention distinction in academia to, to mention a joke for purposes of analysis is not to actually stand up and perform it. But the the, the the larger point is this, that our machines don't understand this, and they will have to understand this if we ever want them to engage with us as uh, partners in, in the production of humor. If we want them to tease us, if we want them to be jocular uh, when they remind us about things, if we want them to be sarcastic, and humorously ironic, if we want them to lift our mood when we're down, if uh, we want them to be a little mischievous, or perhaps just a little unpredictable, I think people would like machines to be a little bit more predictable in certain contexts, then uh, we will need to give them much more knowledge about us. And understanding what it is that they need to know, what it is that we humans know about each other when we make jokes or when we use irony and sarcasm, is the essence of the computational approach. It's trying to understand what's going on, what are the regularities, what are the assumptions, how can we model them?
1: So let's delve into some of the topics that you cover in your book, and can we start with the very basics? So how do you understand what is a sense of humor?
2: Yes, it's funny that we use the word sense, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So we use the word sense for a touch and taste and hearing. And we use the word sense for common sense. And we assume the word or the phrase common sense means something like an understanding of the world. The, the people who coined that phrase originally, um, Roger Bacon, I think, the, the early proto-scientist who coined the phrase, and maybe Aristotle used something like common sense. The idea was it was the intersection of all of the physical senses. It was the interplay of all of them in some kind of larger sense. And common sense and the sense of humor are intricately related. You can't have a sense of humor without a common sense. So, common sense is our model of the world and what is normative in the world. What can be reliably expected to happen in the world? When I press this, what happens? When I go to the counter in McDonald's, what am I supposed to do? What can I reasonably expect from someone in that context? These are all uh, pieces of tacit knowledge that we don't read about in encyclopedias or that we don't learn in school or check out on Wikipedia. We just acquire this by interacting with the world. And that common sense then fuels our sense of humor, which is our ability to push circumstances beyond the boundaries of common sense. So one fuels the other. So when you talk about a, a sense of humor, well, we actually mean multiple things. We have the general sense of humor, which is our capacity to understand jokes, or to be humorous and engaging, playful, and mischievous, and so forth. But then we talk about having different senses of humor. We might say that your sense of humor is different than mine, or that Joe has no sense of humor at all, or that Michelle has a dry sense of humor. So we have a, a sense of humor as a, a marker of personality, and can be understood in terms of human personality characteristics, aversion to certain topics, openness to risk, all of these things. And then we have the the concept itself, which is a branching of common sense. And both of those things are subjects of computational and quantitative modeling. There are people who are deeply intrigued by what a sense of humor says about us as people, and they use it to characterize people on various axes. They try to use people's psychological profiles to understand their relationship to jokes. And then that, of course, feeds into the computational model as well. We can't have our machines assuming that the person they're interacting with is a generic human being and that we all have the same personality. We want our humorous machines to understand us as individuals and to be able to profile us and to say, oh, Tony doesn't like that kind of joke. Or he likes that kind of joke in private, but don't use it when there are other people in the room. Or um, he's sensitive about this, or he's averse to this, or he's open to that. And then to gradually understand this. And that is one of the reasons why we model humor, and why I argue in the book that we should have machines that are humorous. It's a, a bona fide of their character, and it shows that they understand our character. And that creates a an emotional bond between you and your machine, where you trust the machine, the machine trusts you, and you can be much more effective in your partnership with a machine if you have that bond of, of trust and social understanding. And the sense of humor is the seal on that. It's the, it's the uh, bona fide that says the machine understands you, you understand the machine. And that's why we use humor amongst ourselves. We calibrate our sense of humor to adjust to other people and to create and foster human relationships. and We want to have meaningful uh, mental relationships, social relationships with our machines if we're going to use them as creative partners.
1: So you mentioned earlier the dissection of the jokes for your research. So can you tell yeah. us what is exactly the anatomy of the joke,
2: if, if it has one? Yes, jokes come in uh, all shapes and sizes. Uh, so we tend to focus on particular kinds of jokes. So there, if I could give you just a, a number of categories, there are the formulaic jokes that you learn as children, the, the knock-knock joke, for instance. Um, there are uh, wordplay-based jokes. Uh, children love those too, where we pun, the kind of jokes that you find in Christmas crackers. There's the, the narrative joke, which was the dominant kind of joke, When I was growing up, if you were to see a stand-up comedian on television, it would be a person who spent the entire act telling you narrative jokes. And these are short stories that often have a a formulaic formulaic introduction uh, where someone says, uh, a rabbi, a priest, and an imam walk into a bar. And then you think, okay, that sounds like it's going to be a joke to me, or a man walks into a bar, or the usual setup. These jokes these narrative jokes have a setup a body and a punchline and the setup establishes the scene it encourages you and fosters an understanding of the text as a joke then the body creates the world of the joke and it exploits our common sense understanding to to reason about what we're not told in the joke uh, we come to certain conclusions we make certain judgments and then the punchline is the last part of the joke. And it's a piece of it contains a piece of information that tells us you were completely wrong when you made certain assumptions. Uh, you jumped to conclusions. Your common sense has led you astray. And we desperately dash back and try to repair those assumptions when we received the the punchline. And it's the act of repairing and realizing how easily led astray we were that produces the humor. Now, I must say that there's a temptation in humor studies to assume that all jokes work like this. But if you talk to comedians and people who who write funny for a living, then you'll find that they can be quite savage about this kind of joke. They see it as perhaps old hat. And that anyway, it's only... uh, a subset of jokes. If you look at observational comedians, they see the familiar world as strange, and they do what poets have been doing for for thousands of years, they make the familiar seem strange. Um, and they make the strange seem familiar, and they make us look anew at familiar things. And they have a lot in common with the surrealists and uh, modern artists who try to take objects and rip them from their standard context and give you a new understanding of them. So there's a whole gamut of jokes, and they all have some uh, family resemblance that allows them to be called jokes. But it depends on which theory you you subscribe to. Uh, Since the earliest days of ancient philosophy, when the Greeks were doing this, there has been a divergence of opinion as to what a joke is, um, what is humour as I said, Aristotle talked about educated insolence, and he also talked about how we we laugh at those who are mo- more unfortunate than us, this kind of superiority humor, but there's also uh, those who believe that humor is about a psychic release, getting relief from the constraints of the world by um, rebelling against those constraints. And then there, there are the incongruity theorists who believe that humor Um, is built from a spark of absurdity, something irreducibly silly at the heart of the joke that we are forced to confront and reason. So I would say that all three theories are partially correct in that jokes mix a bit of superiority, a bit of relief, and a bit of incongruity. And the job of, of a computational humor theorist is to try to fit those bits into computer programs and then test to see how effective they are at um, producing outputs. So I would say to answer your question that the the spark at the center of the joke is a bit of incongruity, but the incongruity or absurdity has to be used to make the teller of the joke or the audience of the joke feel better, to feel a sense of superiority um, and to offer some kind of, psychological release, which is often what happens when we laugh heartily anyway.
1: So how would you go about building a machine or computer with the joke-telling abilities?
2: It's, it's the flip side of regular computing. So if, if you are one who puts emphasis on incongruity or absurdity, then that's really the opposite of what computers are generally designed to do. Computers are generally designed to recognize norms, to to be predictive in the world of familiar happenings. So, if you're predicting the stock market or you're predicting the weather or you're playing chess, your goal is not to be freakily unpredictable. Your your goal is to follow the norms and to not stick out. You want to pass, so to speak. you're talking about um, familiarity and normative behavior, whereas with humor you're deliberately trying to be provocative, you're deliberately trying to be unfamiliar, you're deliberately trying to be nonsensical. The essence of a joke is to be able to find meaning in nonsense, and our machines can certainly generate nonsense, very high rates of nonsense by randomly crashing ideas and words together. Uh, the real challenge with computational humor is to create nonsense that is not nonsense, or rather, I should say, something that at first approximation looks like nonsense, but at second glance is actually quite meaningful. That's the challenge. So you're you're playing with the appearance of no, of nonsense, but you've actually got some deep meaning. So you're producing machines and pieces of software that are playing with the user's expectations. You're tweaking their expectations. So the very first step is to understand those expectations, to model them statistically, to have an understanding of what people expect from you as a regular person or a regular entity, not as a comedian or as a comic entity. And then once you have a handle on those expectations, knowing how to play with them, how to bend them, how to break them in ways that are safe, ways that won't get you arrested or condemned as a madman, and ways that uh, provoke a humorous response, which is to say, uh, deliver some measure of delight to the audience. But the very first step is common with traditional AI, and that is just modeling the familiar world and modeling expectations. Every piece of successful AI out there now, certainly on your mobile phones and on your desktops and laptops, is modeling expectations. So we have a lot to tap into. And the extra step with humor is then exploiting those expectations for non-standard uses.
1: So are these concepts, such as unexpectedness, absurdity, or paradox within uh, the joke or humor, Are they universal or or are they sensitive to cultural differences across the world?
2: Uh, That's a very good question because the concepts themselves are universal, I think. But the emphasis that we place on them within a particular culture is uh, sensitive to the expectations of that culture. So um, you can imagine a, a community or a group of people or a culture that put little stock on incongruity or you can imagine um, a culture. And I use the word culture in a very specific way. You could talk about um, the culture in a certain school or institution. You could say they put a lot of stock on superiority. So the concepts themselves are universal, but they are instantiated in different ways in different cultures. They're given different weight. And then, of course, each one of us is our own unique culture. So my sense of humor and your sense of humor were each cultures of one individual. Um, And then we might broaden that to our immediate circle and our institutions and our communities and our countries and nationalities and so forth. So each one of these is a statistical mix of the, the fundamental ingredients. And I think the ingredients are more or less universal But of course, they don't have to be given the same weight in different contexts or by different cultures.
1: So how can AI and machine learning be utilized in this?
2: Well, I think the the question there contains its own answer. Machine learning is the key if you want the machine to adapt to a particular culture. The old school AI, and I I would have to admit that I'm more old school than new school, you would build things top down and you would say, right, right. Here's the way you are going to work. Here are your rules. Here are your patterns of behavior. The, the bottom-up approach looks at what it is that you want to model and replicate. Let's say the transcripts of a thousand comedy shows or ten thousand jokes. And you would try to get the machine to learn the essence of those stimuli so that it can reproduce them for itself. So when you do the machine learning approach, the machine naturally adapts to the source of material on which it is trained. When you use the top-down, old-school approach, the machine uh, has no choice but to adapt to you as the creator. The machine is a a little mini-me. It's a model of you, if you will. Whereas if you train the machine on a diverse set of of, uh, data sources, that are representative of a particular culture, let's say, then the machine will naturally adapt to the emphasis and biases of that data set. And there has to be something, there's something that should be said for both of those approaches. There has to be, I think, a controlling hand, a, a controlling idea at the center of these systems, especially if you want to get some theoretical value out of building them, but they also must be sensitive to the data. They must actually be responsive and the machine should be able to learn something from the data that surprises you as the creator. That's a really interesting uh, thing that happens when you get machines to learn, and then you ask them to tell you what what they've learned. You can be quite surprised by the way they see the world. Surprised because they see it in a completely aberrant way, or surprised because they have seen with clarity something that you haven't seen. So the answer is uh, a mix of two approaches. Top-down, do it this way because I want you to approach. And a bottom-up, please learn from the data what it is that is important to people. And then meeting in the middle uh, gives you a, an assemblage of those two approaches.
1: So could you give us a few examples of your favorite joke-telling machines, whether they are in science fiction or in real life?
2: Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, there, I can't say that any of them in real life are my favorites. I I wouldn't even say that the stuff I've built I would pass muster there. I've clearly, I'm inspired by what I've seen in, in literature and in films. And the first chapter of the book, which used to be called, the first chapter I think used to be called Your Wit is My Command, but then I changed it to be the title of the book. Uh, the first chapter of the book goes through a survey of what it is that um, people associate with humorous machines. When I was learning uh, to be an AI researcher, uh, a very common definition, a tongue in cheek definition of AI was getting machines to behave the way they behave in movies. And I think that's still uh, many people's idea of what AI is, getting machines to be more like their science fiction counterparts. And in science fiction movies, we have some Realistic and not so realistic portrayals of machines with a sense of humor. When I was a child, I used to watch the the Lost in Space uh, television show, and there was this uh, bubble headed robot called uh, B Nine, who didn't seem to have any sense of humor at all, except in one episode where he became, I think, recall a stand up comedian. So that wasn't very realistic. Um, then there were machines. Like Colossus in the Forbin experiment, Colossus enslaves the human race in order to save us from ourselves. It's a very draconian machine, but it has an extremely dry sense of humor. Um, I don't think it's trying to be humorous, but uh, it turns out to be quite humorous. So we call this accidental humor. It's clearly a personality asset to have this dryness that people perceive as humor, even if you're not trying to be humorous. I think the most famously well-rounded and persuasive example of a machine's sense of humor is in the movie Interstellar by, by Christopher Nolan. There's a, a robot called TARS, which is a, it's an ex-military robot, a marine. And he has this trash-talking sense of humor where he's constantly um, using what appears to be aggressive humor. It's quite... Um, Effective humor, and it rubs people the wrong way at first. But the the main character is told that Tars used to be a marine, and he was given a sense of humor to make him fit in well with his unit. And an interesting thing about his sense of humor is that it is uh, parameterized. You can shift it. You can say reduce humor level to sixty percent or increase it to seventy percent. And I think that's what people want from uh, a humorous machine. I think they're um, perhaps terrified of the idea that the machine will constantly insult them or uh, distract them to be some kind of algorithmic Robin Williams that is never doing what it's supposed to do and is constantly throwing a barrage of bad jokes at you. I think that would be quite a a bad situation for a humorous machine. We want our machines to have a configurable sense of humor. Uh, We want our machines to know when it is not appropriate to be humorous, And even if it is appropriate, we'd like to tell them to tone it down. Please reduce your sense of humor, reduce your humor rating to 20%, or I need to be cheered up, increase your humor rating to 80%. And that's the the machine I think about when I imagine the future of humorous machines. Uh, Machines with enough social intelligence to use humor as a tool, not as a means to an end. We're not trying to build automated comedians or automated stand-ups. There's enough of the real thing. We're trying to make computers better at their jobs by giving them something that makes humans better at their jobs, which is the sense of humor. And in that respect, I think um, TARS and Interstellar is the model that we should be aiming for.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So where could these
1: kind of robots or machines or computers be utilized?
0: Yes,
2: clearly they have to be utilized in contexts where it it is appropriate to have a sense of humor. Um, So uh, a bomb disposal robot, for instance, shouldn't really be making jokes that will crack people up Mm -hmm. as they're trying to decide whether they cut the red wire or the green wire. But a bomb disposal robot that makes a joke after you've diffused the bomb uh, would serve a real purpose in reducing tension and stress okay so but there's no rush there's not a huge market for bomb disposal robots with a sense of humor um i think where we will get humor is in our personal assistance right now for instance alexa has a dreadful sense of humor i think amazon is trying And it will get there. Google Home, just to name another intelligent assistant. We want them to be more flexible, less rote, less canned in their interactions. Um, My wife and I, we we tease Alexa. Um, Alexa doesn't get the teasing. We're just letting out our frustrations with Alexa. And we make each other laugh in the process. The other morning, my wife asked Alexa um, what the temperature was. She was deciding whether to go out that day or not. It was a cold day in Dublin, and Alexa gave us the, the temperature in Jamaica. I think it was 35 degrees or less. It sounded wonderful. And my first instinct was, are you having a laugh? Are you doing this deliberately? And of course it wasn't, because it doesn't have a sense of humor. So I think in social interactions with personal assistants will become more flexible, and more humor will be used as a bona fide of their understanding of our character. They'll joke if I listen to the same song five times in a row, or if I order pizza too many times during the week from from the online app or whatever. So that's a safe form of humor, and that's a classic example of a case where we would tell Alexa to tone down the humor setting if it becomes tiresome. But then there will be Applications that really call out for a sense of humor. Imagine a robot home help system. You've bought a, a home help system to help a loved one in their home. They don't want to go to a nursing home. You want them to stay in their home, but you need to give them something to help them when you're not around. So you, you give them a, a home care robot. You want them to bond with the robot. The robot's going to be giving them instructions that make great take your medicine don't eat that you need to exercise um, stop watching television whatever and if you can do that with a sense of humor um, that acts to ensure that people understand you as a social agent and as a friend i think that is is an excellent thing to do people will think oh that's just faking it i can't stand fakery Uh, a robot pretending to be funny, a robot pretending to be your friend. The the point of studying these things is to move beyond fakery, to move into a realm where the machine genuinely has a sense of humor. And if we can say that it has a genuine sense of humor, then we can begin to be less cynical about using labels like friendship and companionship and um, trust and reliability. And I think the the home help situation is a clear example of that. But also, you don't have to be old and infirm to appreciate a machinery sense of humor. There are the um, online teaching assistants, automated uh, teaching assistants that will be uh, giving all of us an ability to bone up on certain skills or to improve our skills or to um, help us revise. I use Duolingo. I use it every day. Um, I love it. I don't think it's improving my language capabilities, but I, I, I'm a sucker for the gamification features. Um, I think systems that teach you and that can use humor are going to be more effective than systems who are stern schoolmasters. And there are many applications where we interact with machines where humor can go a long way to making the unpalatable palatable and to make us work harder, be better. And uh, I think it's not going to be long before we see these systems having something approaching, uh, a modest but real sense of humor.
1: So what kind of considerations should be taken into account when we develop these kind of AI?
2: Yes, because humor humans use humor to wound and to hurt, as well as to delight and to please. Uh, if you think about what happens in the schoolyard, bullies use humor. I mentioned earlier the what was in the early years of humor studies a dominant theory, and some people still espouse it, the superiority theory. It was Thomas Hobbes, a philosopher who was around just before Newton, in his book Leviathan, who espoused the superiority theory. Bullies use uh, humor to make themselves feel bigger and better, and to make those they dislike feel smaller and insignificant. And we certainly don't want our machines to be learning that kind of humor. We would prefer our machines to be self-deprecating when they make mistakes or when we think they've made a mistake. Frequently, we accuse them of mistakes when the error is our own. But when we think they've made a mistake, it would be nice if they had a self-deprecating sense of humor. We'd like them to use irony, gentle sarcasm, Uh, when they're interacting with us and telling us that something has gone wrong and it's our fault. We'd like them to use certain types of humor and not others. We don't want to be building um, supremacists of any kind. Uh, Things become incredibly sensitive when the sense of humor is automated and placed on social media, because it's no longer a one-to-one relationship between a machine and a user. It's one machine and potentially hundreds of thousands of users on a machine intervening in someone's timeline, making them feel bad about themselves, perhaps spreading hate and dissent and uh, making people angry, threatening, hostile. We've seen this with bots. Uh, We've seen this with algorithms that are used in social media sites that promote content that makes people more agitated because that content is more likely to go viral. If we make the content generated by machines more inherently viral because it's funny, we have a responsibility to make sure that it's not hurting people in the process. So our machine isn't making racist jokes, sexist jokes, Holocaust jokes. It's not making people feel bad about themselves because of their shape or because of of their appearance. Um, And we have to make sure that our machines are respecting people's privacy So uh, a key element where jokes uh, connect with us as cognitive entities is this idea of gossip. We want a good joke. We hear a good joke and we say, I can't wait to tell people this. It's such a good joke. And we have the same feeling as we do for gossip. Of course, with gossip, there's always a victim or someone we're gossiping about. And uh, we tell jokes about famous people, uh, jokes about uh, Donald Trump, say. Um, and that's a form of humorous gossip. And we don't want our machines making jokes about other people. The general rule is that uh, whether you're a human or a machine, you should be punching up rather than punching down. You shouldn't be making jokes about people who are powerless to respond, or who are, in some sense, innocent of what your machine is doing. You should be uh, doing something positive with this with this power you know with great power comes great responsibility and that's even truer when your systems are operating on social media so there's a whole rat's nest of problems that we will have to navigate as our machines gain this social intelligence because that intelligence can be used for good and for bad purposes
1: so what would you like to see in the near future of the field
2: Um, I would like to see companies taking a chance, I guess. I'd like to see funding agencies taking a chance. Um, Speaking personally, and this may not be the case for everybody, when I've ever tried to get funding to do research like this, I always have to dress it up as something else. Uh, You can't really go to a funding agency and say, I want you to give us a lot of money to hire PhD students and postdocs. so that we can build joke generators. We have to frame it in a more sober uh, way and disguise the problem, if you will. It reminds me of when I worked in Hitachi, people would say, and Hitachi funded you to do metaphor research? And I would say yes, but they didn't know that's what they were doing. Uh, You're always doing, apparently doing something else. So I think we need funding agencies to be braver about these things. we have a responsibility to communicate our vision in such a way that they feel it's worthwhile being brave about such things. I'd like to see companies taking um, humor more seriously in a computational setting. I I think that it's a selling point for their devices if they would invest in it. But I fully understand why they see that it is a a difficult uh, road to hoe at the moment because of of the other things that have to be in place and I would like to educate the public a bit as well that's why I wrote your wit is my command to try and get them on board to try and get them to see the possibilities for humorous machines and to expect them and demand them of the product manufacturers that they that they support when they buy their products
1: so something along the lines of Holly the onboard computer in a red wolf who can play practical jokes on Lister.
2: Yes. Um, yeah, you know, playing practical jokes on Lister is a form of superiority humor that everybody can get behind. But yes, they these machines in fiction, they they capture something about what we want. I mean, sometimes they're portrayed as as horror outcomes, oh no, look what happens when irresponsible scientists build things they don't understand. But most of the time, these are expressions of human desire and human need. And we've always had a desire for our machines to be more like us. Sadly, what happens in computing is that we become more like our machines, because we're in a symbiotic relationship with them. Um, And I think it's worthwhile to do the research to make our machines more like us. That stems to the changes that occur in us as we adapt to them. They should be adapting to us. That's really the essence of machine learning: getting machines to adapt to us, and giving machines the social awareness, the emotional awareness, and the common sense to use use humor productively and um, intelligently, wisely indeed, in context. Which is a an ex- the example you gave about Red Dwarf. Uh, A machine that's not afraid to play a practical joke now and then, but understands the effect that the joke has on the recipient. You don't want a machine pretending that you've lost all of your files the day before a big presentation. (laughs) And then the machine telling you, sorry, I was only joking, but you've already had a heart attack and you're lying on the floor of your office. Um, That's not all. (laughs) We want our machines to be safe. Uh, We want them to be playful, not mean. Uh, We want them to be configurable. And we want them to be like us. Now, that's not the same as liking us, to be like us. Um, If they are like us, that means they have our values. There's a danger in that, as I said, when we're um, getting machines to learn from the wrong people, as uh, Microsoft's Tay uh, proved in in 2016. But generally, if they are the best of us, if they take on our best values, I think that is the, the, the best case scenario for stopping AI from getting out of control. I mean, that's another big issue, isn't it? The idea that AI, if we give it too much power and responsibility, will not only... Um, help us in our lives. It will take over our lives and it will dominate us and it will spin out of control. And there are dystopian scenarios about what will happen. And um, famously brilliant people like Stephen Hawking worried in the last years of his life about AI and where it was going. And the the safest way of stopping those dystopian scenarios is to give our machines the best of our values, the best of human values. And I think uh, Humor is the way to do that. Uh, Good humor is the guarantee that we understand each other, that we have an understanding of each other's values. It's how we know people. We, We know people through their sense of humor. It's one of the windows into their character that we use every day to understand people. And it will be a window into the character of our machines and a guarantor that they're not going to misbehave even if they do occasionally play uh, minor pranks on us or are low-grade sarcastic with us.
1: And many of our listeners would remember the South Park episode about the funny bot that took his jokes to the logical conclusion by, well, in words of Bento for Futurama, killing all humans. So you're not afraid of this kind of dystopian reality.
2: No, we are we're presented with this dystopian reality quite a lot. The idea that machines don't appreciate the ramifications of their own goals. So a machine that is is programmed to make sure that the coffee is always hot might sacrifice human lives to make to keep the, pot, the coffee pot hot. I mean they are laughable scenarios. They do point to something serious. it should be said. they're, they're metaphors for problems that we need to consider. And we certainly do need to keep them in mind. But the idea that giving a machine a sense of humor will only allow it to laugh at us when we're down and when we're enslaved, that the idea is that we have been enslaved by merciless machines who then rub salt in the wound by laughing at us as we are crushed into oblivion, I think is is, uh, a dark fantasy that's not going to happen. I think the opposite, that giving machines a human sense of humor, which, if it's the right sense of humor, stresses the right values and creates bonds of affection, is the best guarantee against machines misbehaving like that. I don't really believe in the dystopian scenario. Like, I wouldn't say to people, rush out and buy this book as an antidote to dystopian scenario. That would be false advertising. But I do think that the sense of humor is well worth studying to make machines that are more human like and therefore less likely to abuse us as humans.
1: Oh, that's great to hear. <laughs> so yes, what
2: it's dis- a <laughs>
1: <laughs> and what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Your Wit Is My Command, surprised you the most?
2: Yes, that's a very good question. Um, I started out with a devil may care attitude, I suppose. I have a I would consider myself to have a robust sense of humor, but I guess many most people would say that about themselves. So I come from a, a school of thought that says that the, the joke justifies the means. But I've become more sensitive about things. Uh as I said earlier, I alluded earlier to situations where I I got into a spot of trouble for analyzing certain jokes uh, where people said, you know, that joke works because it makes a presupposition about a negative stereotype and you shouldn't be doing that. And then I started thinking about this a lot. And I worried that it would completely negate my sense of humor if I was to worry about every joke that I made uh, where you, you doubt yourself when you, you lose confidence in the middle of a joke or you don't want to offend people, so you replace a good joke with a joke that doesn't work at all. Um, And generally I I became more sensitive to people's concerns, which I think is a good thing. I think we could all benefit from a little um, sensitivity training in that respect, not actually going on a course, but just sitting down and thinking about the other side and the other argument against what you're doing. And that led me to think about the the chapter in the book that thinks about machines going too far and machines that insult and hurt and offend and how we might mitigate those possibilities. And right now we have very poor solutions. We have AIs that can generate wonderfully fluent outputs that look like, human-written news stories or short stories. But we have very poor ways of getting those machines to check that they're not offending people. And I don't mean bruising an ego here or there. That shouldn't worry anybody, I think. But genuinely hurting a whole group of people by using offensive ideas that reinforce the worst instincts in people. We have very simplistic technologies, blacklists of words that we shouldn't use, um, things like that, that that, that spammers have run rings around for years. And we need to find better ways of knowing where the line is in the sand, that line that says, as a comedian, try to get as close to the line as possible, but don't you dare step over it because someone will get hurt in in a very real way. And I've come to the conclusion that it's not the case that you need to know where the line is before you can be funny. You need to know how to be funny before you can draw the line. And that's another reason to give machines a sense of humor. Uh, The very practical outcome of having a sense of humor is that the machine can gauge the quality of output and say, this will tweak some sensibilities, but it won't hurt anyone. This is going to outrage people, and maybe those people need to be outraged—those politicians or those, those complacent people—and this will hurt people in ways that are indefensible. And we should have nothing to do with this. And the machine should shut this down now. And the machine should be policing itself and have the wit and responsibility to do that. And I think that's a—that was an insight to me that this is an area of research that is really worth looking at, and. It's one way, you remember I said earlier about getting companies and funding agencies to fund this work through a different avenue, getting people to pay attention to and fund research in how machines can detect and prevent abuse online is the, is the flip side of, of humour but incredibly valuable flip side that I think we should be investing more time and energy in.
1: Well, I hope the computer on, on my interstellar shutter, uh, shuttle will have uh, some si- some kind of pun-telling abilities.
2: Yes, uh, not too many. Uh, I, I, I have a love-hate relationship with puns. Generally, I tell people I hate them, but I can't stop myself making them. The book, you've probably noticed that the book is full of puns. Um, and of course, the punning was the the first and is still the benchmark ability of machines in the world of humor. It's, it's as if machines are learning to be humorous in the way humans learn to be humorous by going through uh, wordplay first before they go on to more uh, intellectual forms of humor.
1: Yeah, puns are our guilty pleasures for many of us. We just don't want to admit it. <laughs>
2: Yes, it's the only form of humour that we apologise for when we uh, generate one accidentally. Pardon the pun. Um, (laughs) We have this, as you say, guilty pleasure relationship with puns, um, which I think is fascinating.
1: Well, this has been a really illuminating discussion. So what are you currently working on and what will be your next uh, uh, project for the book?
2: Yes, uh, thanks for that question. It's very interesting because it's, Coming full circle for me, I think, uh, earlier when you asked me about science fiction and early influences, of course, I used to love science fiction movies, and it really created my understanding of what an intelligent machine would be, and that's why I got into AI when I was in university. But one of the big influences on me when I was a child, I used to read comics, too many comics, and I used to love this comics creator, Jack Kirby, that he invented. Most of Marvel's characters um, with Stan Lee. And he was visionary in many respects, absolutely brilliant. He was a big fan of Stanley Kubrick, and I remember reading his interpre- uh, Kirby's inter- interpretation of 2001 A Space Odyssey and dragging everyone in the street to see the movie when it came out, and then being criticized hugely by them because I told them it was like Star Wars, and they were all, including me, utterly confused. Um, so, I got into AI because of my love of comics, and now I'm looking at generating comics automatically. Um, so, jokes are a form of compressed story where you have this incongruity at the heart that needs to be exposed and explained. And we've been, as I described in the book, generating stories automatically for our robot actors to act out. And the Robots have these foibles that make the stories, these shaggy dog stories funny to, to watch. Um, and people love them because they think the robots are cute and they're pretending to be human and they exemplify the best uh, qualities of what Henri Bergson called rigidity. The Bergson was a philosopher who saw rigidity at the heart of humor. We laugh when other people behave like machines and what, what, better way to behave like a machine than to be a machine but now we're turning our story generating capabilities away from the robots the robots died by the way during the the pandemic they were sitting in my office for two years and their batteries were never recharged they're very expensive <laughs> and when i came back in recently i couldn't get them to i couldn't revive them the or ip the two robots so we're looking at generating comics comic books um from the the funny stories that our machines are generating and then rendering these in interesting, funny ways. and So that's full circle for me. I'm quite excited about that.
1: And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book?
2: Okay, so the book they'll find on um, the MIT Press website, my research and my group's research, uh, if you go to aflatus.ucd.ie, aflatus, um, it's this fancy word that my Portuguese postgraduate student picked to name the server, and we've been living with it ever since. It means the divine urge to be creative. It's not one I would have chosen, but there it is. It's A-F-F-L-A-T-U-S, aflatus.ucd.ie, and that's where we put all of our our papers and demos and uh, videos and so forth. And uh, I hope people will come and check it out and email me if they've got any questions. If they like the book, if they hate the book, if they've got questions, I can be contacted at tony.veal at ucd.ie and I'd love to hear from you and to answer your questions.
1: Super. Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you, Galina. It was great to chat with you.